grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. So if you can pass and fill out and open your Bible at the same time, that'll be great. Um, We're in uh, week two of our short little two-week series uh, from the Gospel of John. And uh, if you are reaching for a blue Bible close to you, you can find John chapter 8 on page 757. That's where we're going to land here today. Uh, Last week we talked about the statement that Jesus made, I am the vine. And we talked about how we need to be connected to that vine. And if we're not connected to that vine, then we can still do stuff, but it's not going to be really anything that, that matters or that amounts to anything. It's definitely not going to be good fruit. So, you know, that's what we talked about last week. And, and today, um, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, again, where Jesus says, I am. And today, uh, from John chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 12, it says this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let's be real honest about that statement. That's a pretty audacious statement for Jesus to make. Let's read it again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light life. Now, Jesus is making uh, this bold uh, statement, and if if you think about it, he is saying that that all the other philosophies and all the other human teachers and and everyone else that ever says anything, it's like the light switch is off, and they're teaching you darkness, and Jesus says that I alone am the light of the world. And if you have me, you have light, and if you don't, then you have darkness. Does anybody else find that just a little bit judgmental from Jesus? Okay, you're in church, you're going, is that a trick question? Right? It is. Look at, what, uh, look at how the, the Pharisees responded in the next verse. Verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. In other words, they're saying, you know what, dude? You're nuts. All right? This Jesus guy, you're just a half bubble off plum. You're here standing in front of people telling them that you are the light of the world. That you're the only way. And, and here's what I want you to do. Um, we're going to have a little bit of audience interaction with yourself. I want to throw out a name or a type of person that you might possibly meet. And the scenario is you are getting up to go get a cup of coffee or go to the bathroom or just stretch your legs or I'm boring and you're just walking out in the hallway and uh, you're going to meet this person. And how would you react? All right? How would you respond? So turn to the person next to you and share how you would respond if when you walked out in the hallway, you ran into your local police officer. Go. Just when you talk, it's okay. Okay, how do you feel? Anybody a little anxious, nervous, like what's he doing here, right? In full uniform, you might, might feel a little uncomfortable, okay? But probably, in, for the most part, no big deal, unless there's an outstanding warrant and you're like, oh, you know, and you're ducking and running, right? Okay, uh, what about your teacher from school, okay? Go ahead, share, you can talk. It probably depends on the teacher, right? I mean, it depends on the teacher whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Remember as a kid, and maybe this was just me, but whenever you saw your teacher outside of school, you were like, what are you, what are you doing, right? I thought you lived at this school. That's the only place you exist, right? Okay, what about this person? What about Michael Vick?
How many of you would be excited to meet Michael Vick out in the hallway? A few people? How many of you would throw out a dog joke or something? That'd be rough. Okay, that'd be bad. Um, okay. Um, what about if it were you were to walk out and there was a group of Victoria's Secret supermodels out in the hallway? How many of you, bounce? Nice, Matt. Thank you. Nicely done. How many of you would be, okay, don't answer that question. We'll move right along. What about if you were to walk out and all of a sudden there appeared before you an angel? How would you respond? A real, not, you know, a real angel. How would you respond? Tell, tell your neighbor, how would you respond? How many of you would be just a little anxious or nervous or, or maybe a little scared, right? Do you know how people reacted in the scripture whenever they responded or whenever they saw an angel? They got down like this. They were scared to death, right? Because an angel, a messenger of God, had the ability to wipe out entire armies. And so when an angel showed up to someone, they got down because they were scared. And the angel would always say, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship him alone. You can be scared of me, I guess, but just worship God. You know, get up. I'm just a messenger. And then the angel would tell the person the message from, from God that they're supposed to tell. One last person. What if you walked out in the hallway and you met God? How would you respond? Okay? The scriptures tell us that nobody can see God and live. And you know why that is? Because if you come in contact with God, and whenever you're down here, you're going to go into cardiac arrest, and you're going to die. You're going to lose complete control of all your faculties, and it is over. That's, that's what's going to happen here. Right? Because we worship God, and, and we fall down before Him. Now, Jesus comes along, and He says in the scripture, I am the light of the world. I'm it. I'm the guy. And that's pretty bold. That's pretty audacious. It's a pretty big claim that Jesus says. Jesus says, you can follow me and walk in light. Everybody else is it's like the light switch is not on. God says through Jesus that, that I created all of this. And, and all of the other religious leaders and all the other people and all the other nice people and, and even your grandma, they try to give you all this advice. But unless it comes from me, well, the room is still dark. It's like you're walking around in darkness. Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world. And I have to tell you that, that I think we're so much more blessed to be living now than even in the time of Jesus because we have the scriptures. We have his word. We have what he said here revealed to us. We didn't just have to, to hear it. We can read it and we can know it. What's my point? My point is this, that this is to be our reaction to this. Not because we worship a book, but because it contains the words of God. And do we fall down and, and worship God's word, worship Him with reverence and submission in obedience to it? Or is it just another book? How do we treat this? If we were to encounter God and we would get down like this, what do we do with His word? How do we respond to his word. 
God's word is, is here for us, and, and we have an opportunity to, to read it and to know it. Jesus comes along, and he says, I'm the light of the world. And just to make things maybe a little more complicated or a little more judgmental, a little later in the Gospel of John, he comes along and says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now that is judgmental, right? That's pretty audacious. He's saying, I'm, the, I'm it. I am the only way to get there. The words in here contain the only light, the only hope that we have. Jesus says, Ego ami, I am Yahweh. I am the light of the world. And, and you have to believe this. Now, why is there so much controversy about this book? Well, obviously what we just said, but there's a couple of things, and I want you to follow along in your bulletin, of the controversy surrounding this book. And the first one is, is this, that the Bible is the most widely published and most widely read book in the history of civilization. Publishers will tell you that if they can get a book to sell 5,000 copies, then they consider it a success, and it can be translated into other languages. The Bible has been translated into over 1,200 different languages and sells on average between 30 and 50 million copies a year. It's widely read. At least it's widely published. Maybe we should put it that way. It, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. My cousin works with Pioneer Bible Translators in Tanzania, and he is working on translating God's Word into the, the tongues of the different tribes in that region. It's pretty amazing stuff to listen to what he's doing. God's Word is being spread, and it's being widely published. It's being widely translated. Without a question, it is a, a, an important book. And it has a, a lot of skepticism about it. Think about the, the French skeptic Voltaire. Voltaire, um, he bragged that Christians were so stupid and that Christianity was so idiotic that a hundred years after his death, society would have grown to the point where they would have outgrown their need for Christianity. He said that the Christian faith would be completely and totally eradicated from the planet. And then, ironically, just a few years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought Voltaire's house and began using it for their headquarters for printing Bibles all throughout Europe. <laughs> I just kind of go, God, you've got a great sense of humor there. To me, that's just funny, funny, good stuff. Yeah, so th that's the first thing. The second thing that makes this, this book so controversial, and probably more so, is that this book claims to be God's word alone. Claims to be God's word alone. Now, I have a few other books here with me this morning. I hold in my hand here the Book of Mormon. Um, if you're Mormon, you consider this to be um, your holy book. It's, it's God's Word. It's, it's the Scripture. Joseph Smith uh, was given these special glasses by an angel and revealed these gold tablets. And he translated the gold tablets and put all the information down in this book. And uh, they consider this the Word of God in the Mormon religion. So that, that's that book. I also have with me the Bhagavad... I never do say that right. Bhagavad Gita, all right? Which is the Hindu holy book, all right? It's just, this is just a portion of it. Um, it's, it's really interesting literature, but it claims to be the word of God. I also have up here this morning um, the Quran, all right? Uh, again, very interesting literature. Uh, speaks of the, the ancient Semitic culture, um, and it too claims to be the word of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Taking these three books... Other than the obvious, what's the difference between them? I, I want to suggest the answer is nothing. Because they were all written by humans. 
They were written by mere men, and they just wrote it down, and it claimed to be, claiming for it to be the Word of God. Now, you might think that's pretty judgmental, right? However, if we go to some, some other people, we ask these types of questions. Bertrand Russell, the great 20th century atheist, in his book titled, Why I Am Not a Christian, he wrote this. He said, I think that all great religions of the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, both untrue and harmful, it is evident as a matter of logic that since they disagree, not more than one of them can be true. That makes sense, doesn't it? We can logically come to that conclusion. Jesus comes along and says, listen, these things, they may be helpful. You, you may think that they're good. But Jesus says that I alone, in the, in the light of the world, I'm the only one that can do this. Now the question becomes, why is it that we believe this over these, any of these? Because these books, too, are widely published. They're widely adhered to, widely read books. Why is it that we choose to, to follow this instead of this? Uh, of all the books, why do we believe that this is God's word and these are not? Well, uh, I want to share with you maybe three reasons here this morning. And again, I invite you to write these down and, and to follow along. Um, if you're a Christian, I think these are important for you just to kind of know. And these aren't all the answers, but these are some of the answers. And these, these things will, are going to come up in conversation. And you need to kind of have a defense for this. It's, it's called apologetics, to be able to kind of defend your faith. And it's not like you're out there, you know, thumping people with the Bible, but just giving an answer to anyone who asks of you. Scripture tells us that we are to be prepared to do that. And so uh, I want to share these with you. And if you're not a believer, if you're here this morning going, oh, great, here we go, can I just, can I just ask you to give it a shot for just a minute? Because I've met so many people who give two-cent answers to million-dollar questions, like my friend Danny always does. He just kind of dismisses it all the time. And I, I want to challenge you to, to listen to these things and, and to maybe consider them and see what maybe you're trying, uh, what's being trying to told to you this morning. The first reason is this, that we should believe in the Bible is because, well, Jesus believed in the Bible. And you may say, well, that's kind of self-serving. Uh, okay, uh, hang with me. Let me ask you this question. How many of you, and let's throw humility out the window for just a minute, all right? Put on, you know, your head's getting bigger as we speak. You ready? How many of you are an expert in your field. Go ahead, raise your hand. You're an expert, all right? Come on, keep them up, come on, be proud of it. You're an expert in your field. Yeah, we're looking around. Okay, what do you do? We're gonna put you to work. No, kidding. You're an expert in your field. Okay, you put your hands down. Now, let me ask the rest of us a, a question as well. Whenever you have a question about something, who do you wanna go to? An expert, right? If you have cancer, who are you gonna go talk to? Well, you're probably not going to go talk to the woman that cuts your hair. Nothing against her, but you're going to go to an expert. You're going to go to someone who knows medicine, who knows treatment, and can help you uh, overcome this and treat this and, and get better, right? If you have money and you want to invest it, you're probably not going to go to your Starbucks barista. Now, we are so thankful that the Starbucks barista is an expert in making a great cup of coffee, right? But we're probably not going to go to that person for, for financial advice. We're going to go to a financial expert. We go to experts all the time. We know that when experts endorse a certain product, it gives that product credibility, as long as we know they're not getting paid for their words, right? But it, it's one of those things that we do. Some of the most brilliant people in the world have endorsed this book. They've endorsed the scripture. But some of the most brilliant people in the world have also said that this is not true. So what do we do with that? Can I tell you that their opinions to me aren't as important as Jesus' opinion? 
about this book? If Jesus lived and died and and lived again, then I think we can take His word for it. And if He's the Son of God and and He says something, then then I'm going to believe it to be true. For instance, I believe what's in the Old Testament, not just because it's in here and it's the Bible and because uh, that's what I've been taught and shown, but because Jesus believed in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, it tells us that Jesus says, Haven't you read, he replied, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. Now, you go and you're in high school, ninth grade biology class, your teacher's going to tell you that that's not true. You go to college and and you talk to your professors, you go on to graduate school, and they're going to tell you time and time again, that's simply not true. They're going to tell you that the world didn't start with with a man and a woman, two people that were created out of nothing. You know, that's not the way it began. That's what they're going to tell you. But here's my question. With all due respect, who are you going to believe? Your biology teacher or Jesus? You're going to believe your professor or you're going to believe Jesus? You see, I think... As believers, as Christians, we can have a differing opinion about how this whole thing started and and what they looked like and all that stuff. Okay. But I believe that in the beginning there was male and there was female. Why? Because that's what God's Word said and that's what Jesus said to be true. And either Jesus was crazy or He was telling the truth. Either Jesus was right on or He's totally off His rocker. You've got the story in the Old Testament of Jonah and the great fish. We did a series on this back in November. And as I was going through that series, I had several people come up to me and go, hey, hey, just between us, you can tell me, okay? You don't really believe that story, right? You're just saying you believe? Because how preposterous is that to think of a guy actually being swallowed by a great fish, being in there and then getting spit up on dry land? Come on, really? You you can tell me. I do. I I believe it. And, And you know why? Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus believed it. I believe it too. Does that make me crazy? Well, maybe. It makes me a little bit like Jesus. I'll take that. It means you have faith. It means you you trust in Him. I believe it because it's in there and because Jesus believes it. I believe the Bible because Jesus believes the Bible. Second reason I think we should believe the Bible, the Bible has never contradicted history. How many of you um, have ever been to Salt Lake City, Utah? Anybody? Um, I have to admit, I've only flown in and flown out, but I've got to tell you, in flying in and flying out, it is a beautiful city. It's just the where it's nestled and all that stuff. It's just an absolutely beautiful place. There's about 1.2 million people in that region right there. And it struck me as I was thinking about that, that the majority of the people who live there, well, they're Mormons. They, they adhere to the, to the Mormon religion. And I have to ask myself this question. Have they read this book? Have they read what it says? Mormonism says that there was a vast civilization that existed in the Americas between 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. And in here, it it talks about where they lived and what they did and what tools they used, where the mountain ranges were, the lakes, the rivers, the cities, all that stuff. And here's the kicker. It's all made up. Now, how can I say that? Well, I can say that because... uh, they haven't found anything. You see, when Joseph Smith wrote all this stuff down, there wasn't this, this study of archaeology. There wasn't this study of, of history like there is today. And he didn't know that they were going to go and be able to have these dig sites and be able to verify things and find these things. And as they've gone and looked, they haven't been able to find anything in those dig sites. Nothing has ever been found. 
So the natural question is, okay, what about the Bible? How do we know the Bible is true, if that's what you're going to say about that? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever heard of the Hittites? Anybody ever heard of the Hittites before? A large number of you. Very good. Now, um, the Hittites is one of those things that um, the Old Testament com- uh, tells us about. It talks about how the Hittite nation came in contact with the nation of Israel and how they had this uh, conflict between them and, and how they were threatening them and they were trying to make life difficult on them. Well, historians and archaeologists, they, uh, they said that the Bible is not trustworthy because they couldn't find anything about the Hittites. And if the Bible's inaccurate about the Hittites, then it's probably inaccurate about other things as well. And if we have to use that you know, in here, about if you can't find it, it's not true, then we have to use the same thing to hear, right? If you can't find it, it's not true. That's only fair. Well, in 1906, there was a discovery made when archaeologists unearthed the capital city of the Hittite nation. And they kept on digging, and they found over 40 other cities of the Hittite nation. They found it. And it gave proof to the Scriptures. How many of you have ever heard of the name Belshazzar? Anybody? I'm surprised. Nicely done. That's more than I honestly expected. Belshazzar, we we find from Daniel chapter 5, historians claimed that Belshazzar was a myth because they couldn't find that he existed. Never in any of the ancient Babylonian literature could they find him. They couldn't find him in any archaeological sites. And so that they, they said, obviously, something's wrong. If it's not there and it says it's in here, then this is not right and you can't trust it, right? How can you believe what it says if it's, if it's wrong? Well, uh, for over a hundred years, as the discussion came through, this was the laughing stock of the Scripture. They could always point to that and go, okay, there you go. In 1956, archaeologists unearthed what is now called the clay cylinder of Nabonidus. And uh, on it, it says, the king of Babylon left his son Belshazzar and put him on the throne. They found it. Now, you may be sitting there going, great. Yeah, preacher man, use the two that you know, right? Use the two that have been proven. Well, yeah, that makes sense, right? And yet, here's the thing. How many do you need? How many uh, things in, in here need to be proven by archaeology before you kind of start to accept this? Pick a number in your head. You got it? How about over 25,000? Is that enough? 25,000 different things have been confirmed in archaeology that this Bible claims to be true. Is that enough for you? Does that do it for I believe the Bible because Jesus believed it, and I also believe that because it's never contradicted history. It led a renowned Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluick, to say, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery ever controverted a biblical reference. That's pretty good for me. Now, you may be sitting here going, okay, wait. I still have some questions. There's some things that I know about that my friends have talked about that I've read about, and I have some questions. Well, I'm, I'm good with that. Here's a couple of objections from the Bible, uh, to the Bible that I've heard more frequently than any of the others. Of them. The, the first one is this, that the text that we have is not reliable. And that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good argument there to think about, because what do we have? We have an English translation of Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, Right? That's what we have, because you know, most of us in here, we, we can read English. And so that's what we have. So how do we know that the text is reliable? Question. Um, how many of you have heard of Aristotle? Good. Well-educated bunch we have here this morning. Um, whenever you read the things about Aristotle, 
and the things he thought, the things he said, and those things. Have you ever thought, yeah, I'm just not sure if that's true? No, you don't think that. When you read the words of Aristotle or read what he's, you know, his philosophies and stuff, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, great. We don't question that that is true. We accept it, and we always accept that it's accurate. So how many ancient manuscripts of Aristotle do we have? Anybody have a guess? Pretty much nothing. Now, they've got, they've, got about, they've got less than 50 that kind of reference his stuff and a lot of inconsistent fragments that they can compare stuff to. But the reality is, we don't have much. There's not much out there, and yet we accept it as true. Now, how many documents of the New Testament would it take for you to go, okay, that they've taken and they can compare with each other to make sure that what we have is, is the accurate word? Anybody have a guess? 20,000? How many do you need? Well, what we have is over 24,000 different ancient documents that we can look at and compare to one another. 24,000 of the New Testament alone. Is that good for you? Does that make the text reliable? I don't know. Here's another objection, and I, I like this one. People attributed to Jesus miracles after he was dead. Okay? That the church wanted to make Jesus out to be more than he was. And so as the, as the theory and as the, the mystique around him grew, they gave him more and more miracles. They made him more and more holy. They made him more and more into the Son of God, like the Da Vinci Code says, right? Took a normal man, and the church needed to do something great, and so they turned him into the Son of God. And to that I have to say, okay, let's look at it. The Gospel of Mark. Mark is our earliest gospel. It was written first. Do you know how many miracles are in the Gospel of Mark? Don't have to guess. I'm going to tell you. There's 19. All right? John, the book that we're looking at in a couple different verses, it was written approximately 30 years after the book of Mark. So Mark has 17, and uh, John was written 30 years later. So with this claim that people were just handing out miracles to Jesus, attributing them to him as the story grew, turn to your neighbor and share with them how many miracles you think the Gospel of John would therefore have. Go. If this claim is true, you would think that they were handing out miracles to Jesus like the UPS driver the week before Christmas, right? Just going as fast as they could, handing them all out. The Gospel of John contains seven miracles. Seven. Time and time again, the Bible withstands the scrutiny that people throw at it. Now, why only seven? I, personally, you know, I don't know. This is the, you know, the gospel according to Craig, all right? I think it's because they realized that wasn't the point. John wanted to emphasize who Jesus was and his de- desire for relationship with us. So you, you read the gospel of John, and that's what he's all about. He's about Jesus and his relationship with his mother in John chapter 2, with Nicodemus in chapter 3, with the woman at the well in chapter 4, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 5. And again and again, Jesus is so concerned about the relationship. That's what John wanted to emphasize. The Bible withstands the scrutiny every single time. Here, here's a third reason why I think we should believe the Bible, and I'm going to wrap up with this. It works. Plain and simple, it works. Paul Harvey has said that even if you don't believe that it's the Word of God, it's still the best way to live your life. It just works. You have a problem in your marriage, can I tell you? Here's your options. Right? Here's what you can choose. 
You got, you got something going on in your life? Here's your choice. You have disaster. You have a death of a loved one. You have something go sideways. Here's your choices. If you need hope, if you need comfort, if you need peace, if you need reassurance, if you need something, where are you going to go? What are you going to read? What are you going to go to? Words of men or words of God? Where are you going to find your hope and your salvation? Where are you going to put your trust? Where are you going to do that for you? And it's a question that that I just think you have to wrestle with. It's something you have to consider. You see, I don't think Jesus is being a jerk by saying that I am the light of the world. I think he's trying to help us see that the way we can truly see in this life is to walk with him. That we don't have to be in darkness. We can instead walk with the light of the world. And if you're in darkness, what are you going to pick up? What are you going to do? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. And maybe for you today, you need to start walking in the light. You need to accept what he has done for you. Maybe for you, you need to accept his word and put your hope and your faith and your trust and accept him today. Maybe for you, you've kind of done that, but, but you don't know uh, how, to, how to do that, and you feel like you're not walking with Him. Maybe today you need to take a step of obedience, and you need to put your faith and your trust in Him uh, maybe again, or maybe you need to, to follow through in obedience by being baptized. Maybe you need to talk to someone. Maybe you need to share what's going on. Maybe you feel like you're just walking in the dark, and you don't know why, and you're stumbling through, and you're ready for somebody to, to flip the light switch on. Can I tell you that I can't do that, and no one else can? Only Jesus can? Because he is the one who is the light of the world. And he wants to help you to no longer walk in darkness anymore. We're going to sing a song of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to his invitation to you to to walk in the light and no longer in the darkness. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to ask the band to lead us. Stand with me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for sending the light to this world so that we don't have to walk in darkness anymore. God, I I thank you that you love us and that you're with us. God, it's hard enough to walk through this this life. Glad we don't have to walk through it in darkness. Thank you that that you will shine the way. You'll give us uh, what we need to take the next step and help us do that in you and with you. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.